0: You know, if uh, the reports continue to be true that that there are more people that will come to church on Easter morning than will watch the Super Bowl, that super extravaganza which commands sometimes over two to two hundred twenty-five million people, that more people will be at church, and, and it begs the question: Why? I mean, why are so many here on Easter morning? And I'd like to give you my reason, and that would be simply this: that Easter is remarkably unique in offering hope to people. There's no politics, there's no military, there's no financial change that would amount to the hope that is offered to us on Easter. I mean, this day is remarkable in considering the reality of Christ coming back from the dead. Now, we've tried to prepare you for this all week. Think about it. Last Sunday, we started with Jesus saying that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus going through humiliation and suffering before glory, getting our mind ready for what he, was in, what he was about to engage in. Thursday, Daniel broke the word to us from the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed for the cup to pass, that it might pass. And, and, and we saw Jesus just submit himself to the plan of the Father for the redemption of the world. And then on Friday... Nick broke the word for us from the cry of dereliction. Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus felt the absolute abandonment of the Father as he bore our sins. And yet he had this deep confidence in God and his plan being perfect. And he had a deep compassion for us as he bore our sin and our shame. And so then we come to today. Today is a great day because of Thursday. And Friday, we think about a risen Savior, an empty tomb, bewildered disciples. I mean, can it really be true? I mean, is it really that, is it something that I can rust all my hope in? I mean, it's interesting, in, in the scriptures, there isn't a tremendous amount of, of data written regarding arguing for the resurrection. There isn't a lot in the scriptures detailing all about the resurrection. It just is. They just write it as it is. The bulk of it is on the implications of the resurrection. Given the truth of the resurrection, so what? What does it mean for us? And that's what this passage in Corinthians is really driving at. I I think Paul, notice what he says. Look in verse 16. In verse 16 he says, from now on. In other words, this resurrection has changed everything. It's brought about a completely new day. A new day literally has dawned upon us. It dawned that day, and he says, from now on, he says. In other words, there's been a change in Paul's mind. He says, no longer am I going to consider anyone from a worldly point of view, even though we did Christ at one point consider from a worldly point of view. But from now on, we're not going to do that. Paul's saying, because of the resurrection, I'm not going to look any longer at people as just people. Flesh and blood, financial, educational, social. That's not how I'm going to look at people. I'm going to look at people as spiritual, eternal, as glorious. Now, we obviously know Paul didn't see Christ this way. I mean, Paul originally saw Christ as probably a hoax or a man that was deluded. Jesus was making all these kind of messianic claims, and Paul, I'm sure, considered him to be just deluded. I mean, the Messiah coming and suffering and dying, who would think it? I mean, the Messiah was to come in with a like a conqueror as a king with power, like a Moses king. Just kicking tail, I mean, throwing Rome out, establishing Israel. That's what the Messiah was to do. And to come in with humiliation and suffering did not fit in Paul's worldly paradigm of this Messiah. He didn't believe it. He didn't see it. I mean, how could the servant of God, prophesied in the Old Testament, suffer on a cross? That would mean God is cursing his own servant. It couldn't be. Paul was looking at it from a worldly paradigm. He says, I won't do that anymore. What happened? Well, Paul, like all the rest, had missed the scriptures that promised that the Messiah had to suffer before being glorified. Well, what changed in Paul, of course, was in Acts. When he was on the road to Damascus and he saw he met the resurrected Christ. And he realized this Messiah is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And this changed him. It radically changed him. From now on, he says, I'm not going to look at anybody else from a worldly point of view. In fact, go with me back to 14 and 15. He shares a little bit more of the change. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised was raised. Do you see this? He's going to the gospel. He's going to the death and resurrection of Christ to give evidence and fuel for change. That's the only way we can change. The only way we can change is through the power of the gospel, he says, because he died and rose again. I now am controlled by the love of Christ. A new day has dawned. Folks, with the death and the resurrection of Christ, things changed. Now, for those here uh, that are non-Christian, I, I want to ask you, how do you consider... Jesus. I mean, Paul considered him according to the flesh from a worldly standpoint. And I think many people consider Christ just as a teacher, philosopher, moralist, philanthropist, caregiver, lover of the sick. The problem is that the scriptural record doesn't give us the freedom to look at Christ that way. Uh, Jesus Christ, both in his words and in the words written about him, testified to a much more glorious Savior. One who has come from God, eternal, forever, dead, rose from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, fall above rule, authority, and power. So we are not allowed, really, or we have to run crosswise with the Scripture to just attribute some other meaning to him. And that's why we have theologians that have come up with this lord, liar, lunatic kind of kind of analysis in terms of if jesus said these things and he's either got to be a liar just telling fables so so as to secure some position in our lives or he's got to be a lunatic he's just delusional or of course he has to be the lord that, that he is all that he said he was but for the christian here let me ask you do you still consider christ in worldly ways Have you moved into just a sense of familiarity with Christ? Do you look at other brothers and sisters in a different way? I mean, if this is true, if Christ has died and rose again and a new day has dawned, shouldn't we be looking at each other differently? I mean, that's that's what Paul's drawing us to consider. So this day has dawned. We see that from now on. It's different for Paul. From now on, boom, a new life has come. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are made new. That's the expression. You're born again. You're changed. You're different. You're going to be different. Just like the love of Christ was controlling him, so now we're going to be different. But, but it's predicated upon this idea of being in Christ. What does that mean? To be in Christ. It means to belong to him. To be in Christ means th- that I no longer look at Jesus as just a worldly leader, but I look at him as the Messiah, Son of God, sent to save the world. To to be in Christ means that I accept God's assessment of my spiritual inability, and I agree with it, and I thank him for the work that Christ has done. Uh, To be in Christ means that I'm trusting in Christ and his merits to bring forgiveness of sins and freedom from the bondage of sin. I mean, to be in Christ means that I gladly accept Christ as king and submit my life to his reign and to his word. To be in Christ is profound. By faith, casting the safety of my soul into his care and leave it there. That's what it means to be in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you're a new creation. I mean, that itself is profound. This new day has brought a new creation. You, the believer here, you're a new creation. You've been made new. What does this mean? I mean, the, it's, it's filled with hope. I mean, I think, about, I think about redemption, reconciliation, restoration. To be a new creation. Well, well let, let me give it two ideas. I, I see this playing out in two levels. One is in terms of the cosmic reign over which God rules, but also over the personal reign. Cosmically, what is this new creation? I think when Jesus died and rose again, he initiated the transformation of this entire world. I mean, you know how God created all things. It was all very good. It was all very good. But what we see now, we know, is not all very good. In fact, it's, it's dark, uh, the ugliness of death, the disorderedness of creation with hurricanes, tornadoes, diseases, plagues. I mean, creation is fractured. But this promise that the death and the resurrection of Christ would inaugurate a new creation, I think he's speaking about the entire world. In fact, you see it in verse 18. All things are being reconciled. The world is being reconciled. It kind of is to draw your mind back to Isaiah 43 and 65 and 66 when God says, I will make a new heavens and a new earth. That God has promised. And in fact, you see in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says that the creation is groaning for redemption. In other words, in the death and resurrection of Christ, there was initiated this move towards all creation being returned to the glory that God had originally created it to be. But not just at a cosmic level, but also at a personal level. Now think with me personally over this, that you are a new creation. What does this mean? Well, it's kind of helped out in understanding the old has passed. And the new has come. I mean, if you've lived long enough, those words just have happy weight to them. The old has passed. To be made new personally. That Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, has taken away our deadness in sin. He has brought freedom, forgiveness. To be made new Being a new creation means that all of our sins have been washed away and we can be adopted by God. I mean, all of your sins have been put upon the Son, they've been washed away. To be a new creation means that you have been now given the Spirit of God, which is evidence of the new age, so that you can begin living righteously. You can be different to be a new creation means that we no longer fear death because now we're in Christ. And to be in Christ, we can never be separated from the love of God. So, so what he's saying here, this new day has given birth to a new life, a new creation for us. Now, you know, you look at life and say, well, I don't see it all happening right now. And th- this is what the theologians call the overlapping of the ages. The death and the resurrection of Christ inaugurated a new day it will be consummated at the return of Christ. It's also called the now and the not yet. Things have happened now, but they're not yet complete. That This death has started it and Christ's return, and we live now in the overlapping of the ages. Now, let me try to give you an example. If you've ever read uh, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, second book of C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, if you remember the book, and I'll try to explain a little bit of it, that the scene is entered where, there is a wicked witch who has cursed the world. And that's the scene. And and the world has been cursed with an eternal winter. So it's always snowing. It's always cold. It's always dark. And there's nothing that can change it. Well, Aslan is a tiger. He is the Christ figure. He enters the scene. And through a number of events, he ends up being killed to save others. And and he's killed unjustly. And he is raised from the dead. And everybody knows now that Aslan, the Christ figure, has been raised. And the reason they know it is because the sun begins to shine, the ice begins to melt. It doesn't happen in an instant, but there's this thawing of the wicked's curse over the world. And so like with us, the church now is that thawing effect in this world, that that it's this incremental change that is taking place where where we are growing in our newness in creation. So here's what it looks like. What's the resurrection mean? For the Christian, it means that while we yet suffer, suffering is not removed. Suffering is redeemed for the Christian in the overlapping of the ages. So in other words, what's, what's this mean? It means that though we are in Christ and though we are a new creation, we will suffer, but our suffering is redeemed to display the glory of God. Our suffering reflects the gospel. Our suffering well displays the goodness of God. Listen, just you know a point of truth regarding this passage. Paul was writing this church at Corinth that he planted, and it's a second letter, obviously. It could be his third some, but, but, but it's at least recorded here as a second letter, and uh, he's writing to a people that have, begin to, that have begun to discount him. They don't look at him as an apostle anymore. They're beginning to question his gospel. And here's why. They were suffering. And they said, hey, if we're in this new age, and if Jesus Christ is reigning, what are we doing suffering? Your God must not be that great, or the gospel must not be that true. And so what he says to him is something kind of twisted in terms of logic. He says, no, the suffering actually is my credential for being an apostle that suffering in this age is part and parcel of it, but it's giving way to glory. See, Paul argued his suffering justified him as an apostle because it connected him to Christ, who what? Who suffered before his glory. So we suffer before the glory, but the suffering leads to the glory. This is what he writes to the church in the previous chapter. He says, we do not lose heart, Though our outer outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So think about it. Resurrection redeems our suffering, preparing for us glory. But not only that, in living in this overlapping of the ages, death is not removed, but it's changed Each one of us will go through, unless the Lord tarry, if he tarries, um, we will all go through this cessation of physical life. That our bodies will stop, but our communion with God will not. In other words, what he's saying here is that the resurrection, you know, Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? In other words, the fear that death used to cause was the fact that we were sinners and we would be separated from God. People weren't traditionally just sad about dying. They always saw something afterwards. The problem is, what is afterwards? Am I prepared for afterwards? That's what caused the fear. Folks, don't fear dying. The fearful thing is to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the fearful thing, is that I will die and I will not be prepared. And yet, what the resurrection reminds us is we don't fear death. Death has been changed into almost being a friend, a transition. I mean, death leads us, if you will. In fact, the Puritans used to say it's the last step of sanctification. You die and then you see Christ face to face. But also living in this overlapping of the ages. Sin is not removed. We still struggle with sin. To be a Christian, to be a new creation doesn't mean we don't sin but now we have the spirit of God dwelling within us. See, when Jesus was raised, it was to confirm the sacrifice of Christ and it was to deliver the spirit to the children of God so that we now, have Christ, we now have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us, that we can live righteously, we can have affections for God, we can overcome sin, we can begin to obey the law, we can live in a way that displays this new kingdom that Christ has brought. And we're called to do it. I'm calling you to do it. We do it not out of legalistic background. We don't do it out of some form of have to or duty. We want to do it because of the one who, what? As Paul said, the love of Christ controls me. For he died and was raised again. Therefore, we're going to live righteously. That's what the resurrection means to us. Those of you who have the spirit of God dwelling within you. And then last, I think, in terms of living in this overlapping of ages, is that we are not drawn out of this world. We we try, sadly, I think, to create these Christian subcultures. So we have the big churches, we have our own exercise gym, we have our own coffee shop, and, and, and we do everything just with each other. He doesn't take us out of this world. He leaves us in the world. We're pilgrims in this world. In fact, you living as a pilgrim, knowing that the resurrection is true, knowing that you have eternal life before you, It's to alter the way you spend your money, the way you run your marriage, the way you lead your home, the integrity in the marketplace, the purity in your eyes, the way you speak, the way you consider others. I mean, it's to change the way. If we have that, you are a pilgrim here. And pilgrims don't build big lives in the desert. They're going to the land that they are inheriting. And that's why Jonathan Edwards made that comment I shared a few weeks back. Pilgrims aren't sad when the journey's coming to an end. We are sad when we die. Pilgrims aren't sad. That's the end of the journey. That's when we see the one who has put us on pilgrimage. So the resurrection is incredibly important for us. Yes, we suffer, but it's redeemed. Yes, we're going to die, but we're going to be communing with God forever. Yes, we sin, but we have the Spirit of God leading us to conviction. Think about the spirit dwelling. He convicts us. He leads us to confession, he leads us to the blood of Christ so we can begin walking with obedience. And we're pilgrims. And the greatest thing is, so this new day has given birth to a new life and this new life is resting on a new hope. And you'll see it in verse 18. All this is from God. We're just saying God has done it all. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God has done this. God, in his unfathomable mercy, it says, has reconciled. It's past tense. God has done the work in Christ, reconciling us to himself. I mean, the the, 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 um, irony of the whole thing is that we're the offender. We should have sought reconciliation. He sought us with reconciliation in Christ. We've been reconciled to the Father. So we have a great hope. We have a great hope that this new day has brought about a new life for those in Christ. And this new life now rests in God. Now what we want to do for a few minutes is um, we're going to show you some testimonies of people who have been changed by the power of God. And it will be a video and you'll get to just sit back and enjoy the work of God in the lives of other people. And then I'll just close this in a minute.
1: Joe Wilson, and uh, this is my fiance Jennifer Perry. And...
2: God has brought us the Christ Covenant, and we're going to be getting married in August. Before we heard the the gospel, it was really hard to to talk to Joe. Um, sometimes it would feel like he he just wasn't listening, and and sometimes he'd be a little a little quicker to be angry with me when it comes to any kind of. Um, criticism or
3: just something that I thought could change in the relationship. About six months after I became a Christian, when I was 21 years old, I was startled thinking about something and I thought how much I had changed in this six months. I used to be very selfish and self-centered. My life consisted of working hard for material success. My relationships with others were superficial and I had no desire for God.
4: So I think the most significant change that I have seen in my life, my life is um, moving towards people and loving people. Um, I never had a desire to do that. I never wanted relationships with people. I hid behind Luke I hid behind my children. I didn't pursue people. I, I ran from having any type of relationship with people.
1: You know, it, it was just... Uh a different world, you know, um, bitterness, uh, you know,
2: love for worldly things,
1: yeah, and it's just amazing, you're so blind to it, like you don't even, you don't even know what you're doing until you have the gospel preached to you, and it's just, you know, anger, and, and like I was saying, bitterness. For
2: for a long time, actually most of my life, I struggle with anxiety and depression, and never really knowing the truth of, of Jesus Christ and, and that He's there to carry my sins, my anxieties, and my fears.
3: When I was 21 years old, God softened my heart, and He was doing a work inside of me. Uh, he led me to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and I became alive spiritually. And the Word of God was saturating my soul spiritual nutrients. I was reading my Bible a lot and the most important thing that was that I began my journey with a a personal relationship with God Almighty.
4: Realizing and the gospel, preaching the gospel to myself, hearing the gospel over and over um, and I guess just contemplating what Christ did for me and how what a I know my sin and what a wretch I am, but Christ, um, he chose to draw me to himself, he chose to forgive me and to still love me. And so, if he can love me that much, cool. I, I and his strength can move towards people and, and love them.
3: The awesome thing about God is he is still faithful to complete the work that he started in me. He is still changing me to reflect His glory more and more. And in the more recent chapters of my life, God has been challenging me to delight in Him. There are two main ways I delight in God. First, when I feast on God's Word, I discovered the value in slowing down when I read the Bible. Lately, I've been doing in-depth Bible study on certain passages and savoring each and every word as God feeds my spirit with His Word. The other main way I delight in God is connecting with Him on a regular basis. And I've recognized for my life the times when I'm closest to God is when I just go for a walk and I connect with Him and talk to Him and have fruitful prayer times and just delight in Him like I never have before.
4: I no longer have to keep a lock on my heart. I no longer have to hide. I have a new freedom in pursuing relationships because Christ has taken that for me, and we're, we're all in that. I am I can now be vulnerable, but know that um, God has loved me. I am just coming off of the women's retreat, and so, Four years ago, for example, I was calling Luke, begging him to come pick me up because I didn't want to interact with all these people. And here I just um, finished my fourth ladies' retreat and I went in excited and I came out more excited because I um, had relationships. I guess I walked away from the retreat just overwhelmed that God would give me that much love in my heart for other people and not just myself. And so that has been um, an amazing change because it is nothing that I would have desired or done on my own, um, but that he put in me, that he He gave me that desire. He gave me that new love for people and to want to pursue. And so for me to even um, move towards people at church or at a retreat, um, was unheard of in my thinking. Um, That's not something I would feel comfortable with. So to actually pursue and have an ongoing relationship with ladies, numerous ladies, and not just one, is pretty amazing. And I know only God did that.
1: So about five months ago, um, a guy from work, Luciano, uh, invited us to a Bible study. Um, and so at first we were just like, okay, yeah, that sounds good, and so, you know, I just asked Jen if she wanted to go one night, and she said, sure, why not, and so, you know, we went and, um, you know, was first, you know, teaching out the Gospel of John, and then it went, and then the, the next week he went straight into salvation, and just teaching us how important it was um, that we know that Jesus died for us on the cross um, as our only Savior, um, and the only, only way you know, to the Father through Him and just the gospel, teaching it, you know, salvation for about three months straight and it just really, really impacted us and, and opened our eyes up to a new light, I guess you would say.
2: To think you're a big person and, and to learn exactly what it is to sin and, and how big of a sinner and how we're all just full of filth and we're nothing compared to Jesus Christ. That was the breaking point for me.
1: So Luciano, he shared the gospel with us um, and and, and really taught us the meaning of salvation. um, Jesus dying for us on our sins on the cross um, and the resurrection for him to defeat that sin by being raised again from the dead. Um, just really, really hit home for us and um, brought it, brought it the change. It's amazing.
2: Before we were, we were doomed into Satan's path, and and now that we know that Jesus has died for us, and, and that He carries our sins, and that He's defeated Satan, I I know that I'm really excited to walk in the kingdom of heaven when that day. And to look at Jesus Christ and, and God and, and just thank them for everything that they did. It's been really nice finding a, a church that actually preaches from the Bible. And there's a lot of a lot of churches out there that you don't fully get the correct picture that God intended for us to hear, or Jesus intended for us to hear. And I just really look forward... Just seeing the way that God is going to use me as a rock, and and where He wants me to use my talents in Christ's covenant, it really excites me.
1: I agree. Yeah, I mean, just, just looking forward to you know getting to know everybody, um, you know, and, and and you know how maybe how I can help anybody, and you know, um, just get to know them better.
0: We found a whole new family. You you hear testimonies. So a new day has dawned, right? Christ has come and has established his kingdom. And he's given life to new people. And you heard testimonies both of justifying faith. That is for, for Joe and Jen coming from darkness to light. The gospel is preached to them. They had never believed it. God opens their eyes. Boom. Yes, it makes sense. I want that. And you see sanctifying faith with both Kayla and Larry, kind of just speaking to the ongoing work of God in their lives. So, so we encourage you, um, we want to encourage you, I am encouraged uh, yeah, to, to, to seek Christ even now, renewing your heart, renewing your love for him in terms of, uh, we don't believe in a faith or a, a set of propositions simply, that Christ is living and reigning now. And, um, and for anybody, I just want to say, too, at the end of the service, if you have questions about this or if you, are in, you want to inquire over what is the faith or why isn't God changing me, then I and Daniel and a number of elders will be up here and strolling about. We would love to entertain you and, uh, and entertain your questions and talk to you. We won't be entertaining you, uh, <laughs> just for the record. We're not that type of church, right, Daniel? Dogs and ponies, not here. Uh, but we would love you to come forward. So um, let me turn it over to Charles now. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have uh, not just given us a son and placed our sins upon the son and crushed the son, uh, but, but he has been raised and now seated at your right hand. And through the power of your spirit, you've opened our eyes to this truth, and we are thankful Father, we, we say that and we recognize how shallow it sounds, but we are thankful, Father. Make us more thankful. Give us greater vision to see the glory that you have uh, exercised in doing all this. All this is from you. You've reconciled all things to yourself through your Son. Would you be glorified in us living uh, as new creations in the overlapping of the ages? Father, may we suffer well this year. Uh, may, we, may we die well if we are called to die this year. Uh, may we fight sin uh, through the power of your spirit, uh, walking in greater and greater conformity to Christ. And, and, and may we live as pilgrims. Father, do that work in our souls uh, that we would understand the nature of this pilgrimage we are on, that our tents are beginning to flap and we are moving toward that great day. Father, ready us for that. That day, face-to-face with you, will we come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.